Open up your Bible, the Bible that you brought with you. Grab the Bible that's there in the pew and feel free to keep it if you don't have a Bible of your own or open up the Bible app on your phone to Daniel chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 613. We've just started this new sermon series on Daniel and if you weren't with us, when we last left Daniel, as you're finding chapter 2, he and his three friends were living in exile from Israel. And they had just graduated, you might remember, at the top of their class in the three-year cultural immersion program of Babylon. Now, if you weren't with us, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he commands at this time the world's greatest superpower. History, in fact, records the incredible accomplishments of his reign. Among them is believed to have been, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The walls that Nebuchadnezzar constructed around his capital city were, were 56 miles long. 56 miles long. That's 200 square miles of land. They were so thick, they actually had chariot races on the top of the walls. I could go on and on, but the picture that I want you to get about Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, is that from the outside, his reign looks mighty and secure. But if you found Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to summarize parts of it before we read, get into reading in the middle, chapter 2 gives us a different perspective on Babylon. On the outside, things look mighty and secure, but as we dive into chapter 2, we learn that all is not well in Babylon. The king is not sleeping soundly. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar isn't sleeping at all. He is being haunted by a recurring dream, the details of which he may not be able to remember. But its impact, he definitely cannot forget. Underneath, underneath the confident veneer of his royal robes and golden crown, the actual temperament of the most powerful man in the world is one of great fear and deep insecurity. Again, if you have it open to chapter 2, you see within the first couple of lines that we are told the king, not once but twice, is troubled. Like any effective ruler, Nebuchadnezzar calls upon his team of advisors to help. Again, I'm summarizing the first part of chapter 2 for you. He calls upon his team of advisors, his wise men. And when I say wise men, I want you to think of the same kind of wise men that came for the birth of baby Jesus. He summons his wise men of the royal court. And these are the king's political, economic, and religious think tank. They're experts in their field, and they are eager to help their king, as always. All they ask for is the proper information. You know, the necessary data. Just tell us the details of your dream, and we'll do a little study and research. We'll Google it and get back to you. But Nebuchadnezzar throws them an unexpected curve. We don't know why Nebuchadnezzar does what he does here. It, there's some tension in the text. We don't know if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't tell them his dream because he can't exactly remember it. He's got flashes, but he can't remember the, the integrity of it. Or it could be that Nebuchadnezzar is testing the integrity of his staff here. Whatever the reason, Nebuchadnezzar withholds the data, get this, they need to do their job, right? Nebuchadnezzar basically says, hey, here, you tell me the dream and then interpret it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to give you nothing and you give me something. And Nebuchadnezzar's advisors understandably balk, uh, no can do. <laughs> In fact, they say this, no king has ever asked such a thing of his team. They press, no one can do this. No one can do what you're asking. Only the gods could do it. And we know gods don't live among men. 
They repeatedly complain about the impossibility of the king's demand until Nebuchadnezzar's patience snaps. Disappointed, we might imagine, disillusioned, surely disempowered, no doubt. Nebuchadnezzar wields the only influence he has left as he impulsively makes his recurring dream everyone else's nightmare. In a fit of restless rage, Nebuchadnezzar orders all of his advisory staff to be put to death. Off with their heads! And in case you haven't been paying attention, as we enter into the text, all includes Daniel and his friends. So if you've got chapter 2 open, we're going to start reading at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out, and put to, gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel, and at this Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. They urged, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll get into the rest of chapter 2. Don't worry as well. Here at Grace, I told you our vision is to engage life in our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. And our, well, the way we live out that vision, our mission is to follow Jesus, to share life together and lovingly serve others. And even more specifically, in these next couple of years, we believe God has given us some very tangible benchmarks for that. And one of them is being a witness. The other was establishing an embassy. We talked about this at the conclusion of our 50th anniversary. And the third was leaving a testimony. But the first was being a witness. One of our goals as a community of grace is to be a witness for the kingdom of God. As the people of grace, in other words, we don't just want to profess we believe in God. We long for people to see the Lord at work in and through us. Witnesses, in other words, provide evidence. 
And together, we want the presence of God's reign, that the Lord is in control, that the Lord has a plan, and therefore in the Lord, we all have a purpose to be witnessed through what we say, to be evidenced through what we do. I bring this up. I'm hitting this first because here in chapter 2, through the example of Daniel, I believe we receive a clearer and more tangible picture of what it actually looks like to be a witness for the kingdom of God. And that's what I want our focus to be this morning. I want us to see four dimensions of Daniel's reaction to all that's happening around him. Because in these four reactions, four dimensions, I believe we can take notice and learn from Daniel this morning. I want us to see four things. Daniel's attitude, Daniel's posture, Daniel's focus, and finally Daniel's testimony. Daniel is a witness for the kingdom of God. We begin with his attitude. Daniel finds himself, as you heard, in the middle of a crisis situation. Daniel hasn't even made it into upper management yet. Right? He's not even part of the, the upper management yet. In fact, there's some more tension in this story. If you caught the very first line in chapter 2, this incident either takes place during his three-year training or it takes place, place immediately after. We're not completely clear. But what is clear is that because of the king's insomnia, it's not just Daniel's job that's on the line. It's his very life. The situation, the challenge before him, as you heard, is grim. The king's request, in the words of the senior staff, is an impossible task impossible. But as you also heard, as everyone else is starting to feel the noose around their necks, Daniel's attitude is markedly different. Daniel is poised. Daniel's attitude to start this morning is peaceful. Despite the perceived impossibility of what he is facing, even though his death sentence has already been passed, right? I mean, the guard shows up, remember, to kill him. But Daniel doesn't panic. Daniel doesn't flinch. Why? And I'm going to double back a little bit to something we talked about last week because it's here again. Daniel doesn't panic. Daniel doesn't flinch because Daniel believes the Lord. His God is sovereign. His God is in control. If you were with us last week, and if you weren't, let me just give you one of the most important parts of last week's sermon, is belief is when we entrust our lives to God. Belief gets real when trust follows. And one of the things that I really hit for you last week is trust is not intellectual, it's not emotional. Trust is tangible. And here we see that Daniel entrusts his life to the Lord. He puts his life in God's hands. And as a result, he is peaceful. Daniel is so chill. Do you catch this? Daniel is so chill here he doesn't even, again, sweat the fact that the guard has come to execute him. He doesn't go, my, that's a big knife you have there. No, he starts up a conversation and tries to better understand the situation by asking questions. Daniel is so at peace here, trusting the Lord, he actually initiates an appointment, a personal audience with the king. Guys, this is a big deal. Think about this. Daniel commits himself without having any data. He goes in and makes an appointment, and he's got nothing. He's got nothing. He's not walking into that room with anything, and yet he says, hey, I'm, I want to make an appointment. I, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. Daniel is confident in the Lord's ability to reveal what's missing. He's got nothing, but he knows the Lord can give him something. He's confident in his God-given gifts 
as an interpreter of dreams that's mentioned in the end of chapter 1. And what do we see? Daniel's peaceful, non-anxious attitude that's rooted in his trust of the Lord, what does it do? It results in a stay of execution, right? The order is suspended for a day. Daniel's attitude is peaceful. My friends, and again, I'm retreading a little bit on last week, but it bears repeating. We believe in the Lord. That's why you're here, I imagine. That's why you're here this morning. We believe in the Lord. If I were to ask you to a person, do you trust in the Lord? I'd get, I would hope, a chorus of amens, yeses. Yes, we trust in the Lord. But my friends, is that confidence, is that assurance visible? Is it evidenced in our attitude before the circumstances that befall us? The challenges that confront us? Or are we flinching? Are we panicking? Are we losing our heads? I want you to take a pulse check right now. Literally, I want you to check your pulse. Check your pulse as I make a declaration. A declaration not of my own, but a declaration that is the word of God. My friends, hear this. The spirit of the Lord is within you. The spirit of the Lord is within you. Check your pulse. Are you following the rhythm of the spirit? Or are you getting ahead of the spirit? Running around like crazy? Before the impossible, the limits of human ability, are we abiding in the peace of the Lord that all that we need will be provided? Or are we sweating and struggling to make our own ends meet? Daniel's attitude was peaceful. It exuded his trust in the Lord. But the second thing I want us to see is Daniel didn't just buy himself some time and then show up before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's attitude was peaceful, but his posture, his orientation was one of prayer. Do you catch this? Daniel knew, he trusted, that he had God-given gifts. But Daniel realized his gifts have their power when they're plugged into the source, as it were. So Daniel's posture, Daniel commits to pray. In fact, he goes to his three friends. We're given their Hebrew names, but from here on in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for the remainder of the sermon series in honor of VeggieTales will be Rakshak and Benny. <laughs> Daniel goes to his three friends, Rakshak and Benny, and calls them together. And we have this beautiful picture of four young men. At this point, I want you again to keep this in your mind. They're probably no more than 18 to 20 years old. All the students that are still in this room right now, think about this. They're no more than 18 to 20 years old. Daniel calls them together, and we have this picture in ancient Iraq of the first recorded student prayer meeting in the Bible. The first recorded student prayer meeting in the Bible. And I really want you to hear this, to be clear. This isn't some exercise, okay? This isn't some gesture of devotion or some token sign of piety. What I want you to see is Daniel and his friends are on their knees, and they are reaching out expectantly to the God who called them into existence as a people, to the God who carried them through the wilderness, to the God who brought them where they are now. Their mutual trust that the Lord is in control leads them to reach further by faith in the confidence that God has a plan. Confronted by their limits, the limits of all God-given human knowledge 
they need revelation. They need wisdom in order to answer the mystery before them. Lives are on the line, and they are facing death unless God speaks. Pause. Because just in that little picture, I want you to just chew for a second how this this little picture encapsulates, for me, the universal human predicament and the response of the gospel. It's all right here. Confronting the limits of our God-given knowledge and understanding and facing death unless God speaks. Daniel's posture is one of prayer. But don't go too fast or you might miss that this posture of prayer is not just asking for the answer. Daniel and his friends in this posture of prayer also appeal to the Lord for mercy. You see that? Their petition goes beyond saving their own skins. They are concerned about the lives of others. In fact, they are concerned about their rivals, their enemies. If you just stop and step back for it, Daniel and his company could have easily let the executions go on while they bided their own time, right? I mean, after all, Daniel strongly disagreed with, he was seriously opposed to their worldview, their spirituality. Not to get mentioned on an even more pragmatic level, I told you, they're not part of the senior staff. So to get rid of the senior wise men, the old guard, could be a shrewd way to move up the ranks of their profession. But no, Daniel here, as he prays, seeks guidance and also intervenes for the good of his oppressors. And if you were with us last week, I told you that a, a great way to read what is happening in Daniel is to go back and read Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. I specifically pointed you to Jeremiah 29. And I like to think that part of why Jeremiah's prayers are focused this way is because he remembers in Jeremiah 29 what God tells all the people in the midst of exile. You are to seek, do you remember it? The peace and prosperity of the city. Of Babylon. Jesus will later express it to all of us more broadly and more generally when he says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Daniel's default, his go-to posture was prayer. Beloved, what's yours? What's our go-to posture is prayer, and I want you to answer this honestly this morning, is prayer your last resort? Do you get down on your knees when you've exhausted all other options? Or do you start on your knees? Asking, seeking, knocking on the door of heaven expectantly. Before every challenge, in the face of every mystery and uncertainty in our lives, are we standing on the word of God and praying that word back to God? For those of you, again, who struggle with your prayer life, you don't know what to pray, let me give you a great place to start. Simply pray the word of God back to God. Take what God says and repeat it back to him. And God's not going to go, hey, thanks, I know, I said it. No, God's going to say, that's right, I said it. Do you believe it? Do you stand upon it? Will you live out of it? 
Do we stand on the word of God and pray that word back to God? God, you said, you declare. This is who you are. This is your character. This is your purpose. This is your plan, says you. Do we seek, my brothers and sisters, in conversing with God, listening, interceding, and receiving from the Lord, do we seek to be brought into alignment with what God is doing? Because that's what prayer is all about. Being brought into alignment, our posture into alignment with what God is doing. Are we looking for insight from the source of all wisdom? How many of us have questions, need direction, answers, and we want wisdom, insight? Think of all the other places you go. And yet if I were to ask you, you ultimately would get frustrated by the middleman, right? Take me to the source. I want to go to ground zero of wisdom. I want to go to the, to the absolute. If you believe, if you trust that God is the source of all wisdom, why would you not start there? Why would we not go there and say, Lord, you've got the answer. You've got the direction. You've got the wisdom. Prayer is aligning us to the wisdom of God. Are we looking for insight from the source of all wisdom? Is our posture one of pursuing the heart of our Father? Daniel didn't just seek answers. Daniel pressed into the character of God. When we say God's words back to him, I, told, I said this to you already, how God responds. God goes, I know it. I said it. Do you believe it? Because part of speaking God's word back to him is not to tell him what he already said, but for us actually to hear out loud and get inside our hearts what God said. And if that happens, we are pressing into the heart of our Father. Are you pressing into the heart of our Father? And what do I mean by that? Are you forgiving as you have been forgiven? Are you petitioning for mercy, the mercy you've been blessed with, to be extended to others, even to those with whom you disagree or dislike? Because, my friends, the posture of trust, trust not being intellectual, not being emotion, emotional, trust is tangible. The posture of trust is the posture of prayer because prayer is trusting God. You know you trust God when you're down on your knees. Because the thing is, when God orders something, God pays for it. You know that, right? When God orders something, God pays for it. In fact, he already has. The posture of prayer is the posture of trust. God pays for what he declares. Let me give you a visible example of what I'm talking about. I am preaching and I am praying at the same time. God, your word declares. You say that you desire that none should perish. These are not my words, these are God's words. You say that you desire that none should perish and out of your great love for the world, you have sent and you have given us your one and only son so that we would not perish. We can believe it if we want to. We can believe it if we want to. But what God orders, God has paid for. We can believe it if we want to, but my brothers and sisters, if we believe it, then we have to lean on it. If we believe it, then we have to trust it. If we believe it, then we have to make the sign of the cross, not just something we do before we eat or when we start worship. We need to make the sign of the cross, the posture of our engagement, the focus of our prayers for the world. 
Daniel's attitude was peaceful as a witness for the kingdom. Daniel's posture was one of prayer, prayerful as a witness for the kingdom. And thirdly, what we see is Daniel's focus as a witness for the kingdom remained on being full of praise. Peaceful, prayerful. I could have said praiseful, but it just didn't work. Full of praise. Daniel's focus, thirdly, was full of praise. The outcome here of what was most likely, I like to think, an all-night prayer vigil. We don't know. But the outcome is a vision from God that gave Daniel exactly what he needed. Daniel walks away from praying. Think about this. And he knows the content. He knows what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. He knows the message. He knows what it all means. And thirdly, Daniel also knows by God's revelation, the presentation. He knows what he has to say to Nebuchadnezzar. All has been revealed. And Daniel could have jumped up and headed straight for Nebuchadnezzar, straight for the court, for the royal court. But what you notice is while an answer was what Daniel was after, the answer wasn't his primary focus. We observe what Daniel's primary focus was in what he does next. Do you see it? Your Bible's still open? Daniel doesn't take the money and run. Daniel gives the glory to God. I mean, think about it. It could have been argued. I mean, can we make this case? Time was kind of of the essence here. There's a restless and frustrated king who's not exactly stable right now. There's been a brief stay of execution, you know. Kind of get moving, Daniel. Get going here. But Daniel stops to say thank you. It's that simple. Daniel stops to say thank you. He continues to pray. Are you looking at it? We said it is our call to worship. He continues to pray, but his prayer is no longer a petition. It's no longer an intercession. It's not a request. No, Daniel's prayer of inquiry becomes a profession of gratitude to the Lord. This was his ultimate focus as a witness. Daniel's ultimate focus as a witness for the kingdom of God is to be full of praise, to point to the source of all wisdom and power. To acknowledge the one, as he says it, who changes times and seasons, who deposes kings and raises up others. And just so you would see that this is true, that just to underscore that this is indeed Daniel's center, being full of praise, that this is his unrivaled and undivided focal point, notice that what Daniel does in private, he repeats in public. Daniel gives the glory to God in the privacy of his own prayer space and then watch it later when he stands and picture this, when Daniel, this 18 or 20 year old, stands in the massive and majestic throne room of the most powerful man in the world, Daniel picks up right where he left off. He steps out of the way and directs Nebuchadnezzar's attention to the light of the world. Read it. No wise man, Daniel says. No enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Catch it. He, not me, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. We didn't read it, but if you keep reading it in chapter 2, notice that Daniel, in his description of the dream and its interpretation, does not ever, not once, emphasize his own brilliance or skill. He doesn't even say, God did this for me. Daniel just keeps on pointing to the God of gods and the Lord of kings. My friends, praise, giving the glory to God, is Daniel's singular focus. Through his words, 
from his actions, with his life, Daniel's sole desire, his sole desire is to draw attention to the whole and eternal truth, to the supreme worth, to the absolute sufficiency, to the unchanging reliability of the goodness of God. And so now I ask us, is this our doxology? And doxology is just a fancy word that means where do you find, where do you point to glory? What's your doxology? Where do you find and where do you point to glory? My friends, in everything we say or do, no matter how we feel, no matter what is going on around us, are we declaring, is our central focus, blessed be the name of the Lord? Do you remember Job? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that our doxology? Or are we so quick, you know? We're moving so fast. Are we so rushed? Are we so preoccupied on the question? Are we so fixated on the problem? Are we so caught up on the issue that when the revelation, when the answer, when the direction comes from the Lord, it doesn't even occur to us to stop and say thank you. Now, when I, said, what I just said right there, I am not trying this morning to give you some kind of guilt-inducing, that's not very polite. This is not about being polite. That's not at all what I'm trying to hit here. What I mean is realizing, letting it truly sink in that the answer, the revelation, the direction, whatever it is, whenever and however it comes from God isn't the focus. Are you hearing me, church? The answer, the revelation, the direction, whatever it is in your life, whenever and however it comes from God is not the focus. The reason we can be expectant, the reason we can have hope, the reason we can trust there will be an answer is because God is good. Because God is faithful. Because the Lord provides. So therefore, saying thank you isn't about being polite Saying thank you, being full of praise, is orienting ourselves and directing ourselves again and again to what truly matters. To the God from whom all blessings flow. Are you worshiping the answer? Are you worshiping the direction? Are you worshiping the revelation? Or are you worshiping, are you giving praise, glorifying the God from whom all blessings flow. Daniel's attitude is peaceful as a witness for the kingdom. Daniel's posture is prayerful as a witness for the kingdom. And Daniel's focus remains on being full of praise as a witness for the kingdom. And finally, Daniel as a witness for the kingdom, his testimony is one of promise. Of promise. Let's talk about that dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. It takes up the rest of pretty much chapter two, and I'm gonna be honest, there is so much here, so much here that merits a level of engagement more suited for a Bible study than a sermon, but I'm gonna give you the gist. I'm not getting into details here. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we have a picture of it on the front of your bulletin cover, it's also on the slide. Nebuchadnezzar's dream involves the vision of this enormous statue made of four different metals. And the four metals represent the four kingdoms that will rule the world. The head made of gold represents Babylon. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar has the golden touch. You get it? Okay. All that he says, all that he surveys, God declares this. All that Nebuchadnezzar surveys, the beauty and riches of creation, Nebuchadnezzar rules over for now. Because eventually, 
as the statue changes. Another kingdom will rise as reflected through the chest and the arms made of silver representing the Persians. Notice, by the way, each subsequent earthly kingdom after Babylon is not as precious as gold, but is stronger than the one that preceded it. Not as beautiful, but stronger. Silver is stronger in gold, and so forth. After the Persians, the belly and the thighs are made of bronze, reflecting the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And we close it out at the bottom with the feet of iron mixed with clay, representing the Roman Empire. Iron, by far the strongest of all empires. You know about the Romans. The Romans crushed everything in their path. But the Roman Empire, in many ways representing the pinnacle of human conquest and dominance, eventually will be divided according to this dream. That's the significance of iron mixed with clay. Iron being the hardest known substance at the time mixed with one of the weakest known substances at the time, baked clay. The point of this vision beyond its specifics is the kingdoms of this world as daunting and imp as impressive as they may appear. And again, you got a picture, that image of this just foreboding statue. The kingdoms of this world, as daunting and as oppressive as they may appear, will prove time and time again to be unstable. They will fall. They will fail. They will not stand. And I love this. Don't miss this in the midst of Daniel talking about the dream. He has this line where he says, while you're watching, and I'm going to make it plural, while we are watching, Daniel says, while we are watching, meaning while we're so focused on the rise of human kingdoms, a rock, don't miss this part either, a stone not cut by human hands, a rock, a stone not cut by human hands will come and smash the feet of the statue. And this will not only topple the one kingdom, but all of them. The kingdoms of this world will be replaced, Daniel says in this interpretation, by the stone that becomes a mountain. A mountain that swells to fill the whole earth. A mountain that will never be moved or destroyed. And beloved, Daniel could only see a picture. We can fill in the details. We know that stone is Jesus Christ. Who came into the world, interestingly, during the Roman Empire. That time of iron and clay, and with him, by his own lips, brought the kingdom of God. And notice in Daniel's vision, and this is why we studied the parables of the kingdom this summer, notice that in Daniel's description, the overtaking of the kingdom of God, just like the parables Jesus told us, seems almost unnoticeable, but it actually grows and overcomes the world. That's the dream. That's the dream. And what I find interesting, and maybe you encounter this in your Bible study or another sermon, is often at this point in reading Daniel chapter 2, we read this as some kind of nightmare for Nebuchadnezzar. But apparently Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think so, think so if you read Daniel chapter 2. He doesn't like go back into bed and pull the covers over and go, ooh. Right? We're left with Nebuchadnezzar responding by praising God and making an offering to the Lord. And the significance of that is important. The significance is Daniel's testimony here is not primarily a word of judgment. Daniel's testimony here is a word of invitation. It's an invitation to salvation, my friends. Hear this. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in this vision and as Daniel interprets it is praised. Do you see that? Daniel's, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is praised. He's not rebuked here. Nebuchadnezzar is praised. But within the fullness of this vision that he has given, he is also cautioned not to get ahead of himself. 
not to get so caught up in the here and now that he fails to understand the future. The God of gods, the Lord of all kings, the revealer of mysteries, is reaching out, is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't miss the intimacy of that. God initiates this communication with Nebuchadnezzar. I am revealing myself to you. I am making you an offer you can't refuse. Your kingdom, awesome, won't last. Your glory, impressive, is on loan. Put your trust, place your stock in the kingdom you have built, and you will disappear and be forgotten along with it, just like all the other kingdoms of this world. But if you build your house on the rock, underline, highlight, if you build your house on the rock, the stone not made with human hands, rather than the sands of time, you will be saved. Included in a kingdom that will never fail, that will never fall, that will conquer not one nation or two or three, but overcome the world itself. My friends, Daniel's testimony is a word of promise. The promise, the witness of the kingdom of God, the gospel fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are left with this mind-blowing awesome picture at the end of this story, at the end of chapter two. Picture it, the massive, impressive kingdom of the most powerful man in the world. Imagine it in all its glory. And we are left with this picture of the most powerful man in the world bowed down prostrate before the God of an exiled Jew. He's not just on his knees, he's face planted people bowing down before the God of the man whose nation he conquered. This is Daniel's testimony. Beloved, what is our testimony? Are we speaking words? Our Father's words of promise, the gospel. Are we speaking the words of the salvation of the kingdom of God? Or my friends, are we shouting words of judgment and attack, damning the world around us to hell? I want you to hear me this morning. Yes, yes, yes. Like Daniel, we need to have the boldness and courage to engage others the way he engages Nebuchadnezzar to look deeper, to look beyond the trappings of this world, the nations that rise and fall, to look beyond the kingdoms and empires which we build and in which we place our hope. Yes, like Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, we must testify to the rock of our salvation, the chief cornerstone upon which our faith is built that will be for people either a sanctuary or a stumbling block. But our testimony, like Daniel, is to be one of promise, of invitation, of opportunity, of grace. Our witness is one not born of fear, but of hope. Our witness is not rooted in condemnation. It's rooted in love. So I ask you again, are you, like everybody else, still grumbling and lamenting about the nightmare we perceive before us? The nightmare, whether it's the ongoing legacy of 9-11, 15 years out, still haunted by what happened. 
lamenting and grumbling about the political situation before us, the election cycle that we're in, lamenting and grumbling about the chaos and instability of our nation, lamenting and grumbling about the instability of the world that surrounds us. Are you still lamenting and grumbling about the nightmare that we all perceive before us, or are we bearing witness to the dream? Are we bearing witness to the dream? The dream of a world where all will be made right. The dream of a world where all will be reconciled. The dream of a world where all things, all things will be made new. This is our testimony. This is our witness. And it is even more so for us than for Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar because my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what was only a dream, what was only a vision for Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, they had to wait for the dawn. It's a reality for us. We have seen the sun come over the horizon. With the cross, the empty tomb, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, we have witnessed the dawn of a new day, the rise of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that we have witnessed shatter the empire of Rome. You know your history. The kingdom of God shattered the empire of Rome. We continue to see that same kingdom break again and again the empire of the heart and the mind, shattering our allegiance to self and sin and building us, you and me, into a temple not made with human hands. Not made with human hands. This is our testimony. This is our witness. And beloved, do you see it? I know you do. Do you feel it? I know you do. This world that we are in, this world right now, is just like poor old King Nebuchadnezzar. It is restless, is it not? It's restless for what it does not know. This world that we are in, just like Nebuchadnezzar, is disillusioned by the limitations of answers that are incomplete and ultimately do not satisfy. This world, like Nebuchadnezzar, is raging out of control. And I know we all see that. It's raging out of control because of fear and insecurity. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, we are relying on the only solution we have ever known, death. Let's kill it. Let's kill them. That'll solve our problems. Death, 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 death. Are you sick of it yet? This world that perceives impossibility, we have been placed in. We have a word like Daniel, a word to share, a word to be made known, a living word. Talk is cheap, but our word is living. Our word is the word that becomes flesh. Our word is when the impossible becomes possible. Do you remember what the king's advisors said? Only God can do this, and we all know that the gods do not live among men. Wrong! We can declare not so. We can say that what is impossible has become possible, that God has indeed come and lived among men, and his name is Jesus Christ. I don't want you to walk away this morning hearing this sermon as again, this is always, every Sunday, this is what scares me. You, you're so, we're all so inclined to walk away with a list of things to do. <laughs> okay, I gotta be peaceful. I gotta be prayerful. I gotta be full of praise. And I gotta be full of promise. No. 
you will be peaceful. You will be prayerful. Praise will just come out of you. Promise will be reflected by you when you submit and embrace who you are. This is not about what we do. It's about who we are, who we can be. This isn't about our work or our effort. This isn't about, don't, if you leave, like, oh my gosh, the kingdom of God is on the line right now. No, it's not. The kingdom of God is here. It's coming, man. That mountain is swelling. It's going to overcome the world. Like Nebuchadnezzar, you're invited. You get to be a part of it. You are a part of it, whether you realize it or not. Remember, my friends, we don't save anybody. You hear that, right? You do not save anybody. The only person who saves anyone, the only person who saved you or me is Jesus Christ. You don't save anybody. Let me take you further. You don't change anybody. I know we all try to. I know we all want to. We get married because we think we're going to change that other person. We have kids and think we can change them. You don't change anybody. <laughs> Only God can change us. We are, and that's why this word is so golden, witnesses. Witnesses. We point to the truth of the gospel. We reflect the love of God. We display the evidence of the grace of our Father through the conduct of our lives. So be reoriented. Be reoriented not about what you'd have to do. Be reoriented not to see the challenges put before you as things that you have to solve, but instead see the challenges put before you as opportunities to reflect and share the truth and blessings of the gospel. If you like pictures, and I like visual pictures sometimes, let me give you this simple one. Church, we need to stop being a thermometer when we enter a room. We need to stop being a thermometer. Any yokel can just read and tell everyone what the temperature is. It doesn't take much to go, it's hot in here. Or it's cold in here. Church, we need to stop seeing ourselves as a thermometer. And instead, by the grace of God, realize we are a thermostat. We, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, are to set the temperature in the room. We are to set the temperature in the room. And we set the temperature in the room. We witness to the kingdom of God through a peaceful attitude, a posture of prayer, a focus centered on praising God in all we say and do, and a testimony that interprets the future as uncertain, as seemingly unstable, as unknown as it may be, to interpret the future in terms of the promise, the gospel of grace, the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen.